So now turn with me to Luke chapter 12. And we're going to continue to trudge through this journey of following Jesus from the book of Luke. Today we're going to talk about removing obstacles that we all face in our following Jesus, in our growth in following Jesus. When Abraham Lincoln was the president of the United States, he was asked the question, Lincoln, do you really believe that this nation is moving towards civil war. What do we do? Actually, I believe this was during the campaign. And he told a story from many years before that he had lived. See, before he was ever a politician, Lincoln was a lawyer. He was a circuit-riding lawyer, which meant that in order to go from district to district, court to court, in order to try cases, uh, he would have to ride on horseback over a great number of miles. And there was one long journey that he and some colleagues were taking that would require them to cross over the Fox River at some point. And for a multiple day journey, they had become anxious over the legend of the Fox River, not knowing how they would be able to cross it, but knowing that it would be difficult, it would be a challenge. And so they discussed it on their journey over multiple days. And this is the story that Abraham chose to tell a legal advisor who, or a political advisor who was asking him about the Civil War. He said, many years ago, as I was preparing for this many-day journey to cross the Fox, we asked multiple people along the road, how do you do it? Have you ever crossed the Fox River? Have you ever done it on horseback? What's the safest way to do it? Where, where, what part of the river is the best to cross at? And they didn't get an answer from multiple people along the way until one day at one of the inns that they stayed at, they met a Methodist circuit rider. And Methodist preachers in that day were well known for getting on horseback and traveling from congregation to congregation over many miles, just like Abraham Lincoln was doing as a lawyer. And this Methodist pastor, he advised them. He said, yeah, 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 guys, I know about the Fox River. Yes, it's dangerous, but yes, I've crossed it many times. And I can tell you how to cross the Fox River, but let me tell you the secret, the secret to crossing the Fox River. You never cross the Fox River until you get to the Fox River. And Lincoln's response to that, to that political advisor was, sufficient for the day is the anxiety of today. We're going to solve today's problems today, and we're going to worry about tomorrow's problems tomorrow. This was a story that Lincoln told multiple times as a way of communicating what Jesus said. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Do not be anxious about tomorrow or what tomorrow brings because today's got enough trouble for you to worry about on its own. That's our journey for today, is removing obstacles to kingdom growth. And the first one is anxiety. And in Luke chapter 12, what Jesus does in a, in a collection of different sayings that Luke has compiled here for us, he goes through anxiety, material possessions, inactiveness or inaction, and our selfish motivations as ways that we can get in our own way of following Jesus. Obstacles that need to be removed in order to follow Jesus in fullness. And so let's start here in Luke chapter 12, verse 22, and we'll figure out how we live in light of today's troubles without being anxious for tomorrow's challenges. Verse 22, and he, Jesus, said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. 
Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses nor barns. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed as one of these. But if God so clothed the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Do you not see, and do not seek that what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. So the first obstacle to following Jesus to kingdom growth in this passage is anxiety. And we need to be very clear about what we mean and what we don't mean when we talk about anxiety. Jesus does say, as scripture says many times, do not be anxious or do not fear or do not worry. And there's a clear scriptural doctrine here where we need realize that for Jesus, it is very, very important for us not to live in fear, not to be overcome by anxiety, and not to be burdened down by worry. And so we ask the question then, well, is anxiety a sin? Is my worry, is that a sin? You know, Jesus connects anxiety in this passage with a lack of faith. And so the question for many of us is, how much do I need to heap guilt on myself for the anxieties and the worries that I face. Well, that's where we need to be clear. Because anxiety is an emotion that we experience in response to tensions or thoughts. Uh, And worry is a state of mental distress or, or agitation that we might experience. But they are thoughts, concerns, emotional responses to potential future occasions. And so we need to be clear about what Jesus is saying and is not saying here in this passage. What Jesus is referencing is the type of worry that obsesses over the future to such an extent that it weighs added burden onto the present. And in today's day and age, we all live with a little bit of that, right? We all live with a little bit of obsession over what tomorrow may or may not bring. And so when we approach a scripture that says, do not be anxious, in a time in which any mental health professional would tell you we have an anxious age and an anxious society, we need to actually handle that with a little bit of care, recognizing that not all of our anxieties and worries are the same. That when we approach anxiety, we have to recognize that there are some that suffer with an excessive or persistent level of anxiety that needs a little bit of extra help, that needs a little bit of extra help from the body of Christ, from brothers and sisters in Christ. Some anxieties are so strong that they cannot be simply just repented of and we move on in healing. Some anxiety goes deep. Some anxiety needs mental health counseling. Some anxiety needs extra levels of care and and medical attention. And so I want to be clear that when we talk about anxiety, we talk about anxiety with great care, recognizing that what the church needs to do for ourselves, for our brothers and sisters, 
in the midst of anxieties is we've got to be open and honest and say, everyone in this room has been anxious. Everyone in this room has things that they worry about. Everyone in this room has things in the future, today, tomorrow, next year, 10 years from now, that cause you concern. Okay, so at the base level, we're honest, we're, we're vulnerable, vulnerable about our own anxieties and worries. But once we can become honest and vulnerable, then we can help each other as brothers and sisters discern. Where a brother and sister as a friend, as a brother in Christ, can help battle anxiety alongside of you and where you may need some extra help from a pastoral counselor or a mental health counselor. But whatever anxiety, whatever level of anxiety you're facing, it cannot be hidden. It cannot be stuffed under the rug. It needs to be taken seriously. And so let, let's, let's be clear here about this. We all have anxiety. We all have different levels of anxiety. And some of the solutions and some of the pro procedures for addressing that anxiety can be different. But the starting point is today. Let's admit it. Let's get it out in the open. And let's walk in community together through the challenges and the worries that we face, recognizing that not everybody's path through anxiety is going to look exactly the same. Again, what Jesus is talking about here is such a focus on material needs that you cannot even enjoy the present day. There is a sin <clears throat> that needs to be repented of here in this passage. But it doesn't mean that every anxious thought, every worry is a sin. It means that sometimes we need to be lovingly walking beside and behind those facing these anxieties. So, so let's dive in and let's figure out what exactly Jesus is saying here and what we do about it. Uh, let me say this. It, it, the scriptures throughout have this concept of reflection and meditating on the word of God, on the attributes of God, on the worship of God. Every one of us, if we've been in a sermon, at some point you've likely been told you should meditate on the Word of God. And that's one of the hardest things for us to do because we don't know what it means to meditate. At least we don't think we do. Until we recognize that if you know how to worry, you know how to meditate. Because all worry is, is meditation upon a future negative. Whether it's a, a real absolute negative that's going to come, or it's just a potential negative. That's what worry is. And so the key to establish, the first step in fighting against the worries and the anxieties we have in our life is recognizing that you replace meditation on one thing with meditation on something else. And so if worry is meditation on a perceived future negative, then the way to combat it is med meditation upon the sure and steadfast hope that we have in Christ. That we follow and we, we believe in a savior, a leader that has conquered our greatest enemy for us and achieved life for us. And therefore, any concerns that we have need to be weighed against this sure and steadfast certainty that we have that in the end, Christ, who has already been victorious, will be recognized as victorious by every nation, tongue, and tribe, and every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. <clears throat> and so we live with that confidence, and that's how we combat the worry. You know, the worried person is always lacking even if they're not lacking, and here's why. Even if your table is full, 
with food for the day. To live in a state of worry is worried about the emptiness of the table tomorrow without being able to enjoy the fullness of the table today. Uh, worry is putting the burden of tomorrow onto the struggles of today. That's exactly what Lincoln was talking about with his story. It's exactly what Jesus is talking about. It's loading down the present with the weight of the future. And therefore, you're not able to experience the present out of concern for the future. George MacDonald put it like this many years ago. He said, no man ever sank under the burden of the day. But it's actually when tomorrow's burden is added to the burden of today that the weight is more than a man can bear. When Jesus says to us, worry today about today's trouble and worry tomorrow about tomorrow's trouble, it's a reminder to us that the Spirit of God is here with us for today's trouble. And he will be there with us tomorrow in tomorrow's trouble. But we don't know the exact nature of tomorrow's trouble yet. And so, so anxiety relating to the worst case scenario of what tomorrow may bring actually neutralizes your effectiveness today. Neutralizes your ability to walk in faithfulness and to walk as a disciple today. Anxious disciples are ineffective. Worried disciples are neutralized. And so if we recognize here that every one of us is worried about something. Every one of us gets anxious about something. Then what we do is we recognize that, that all of us need Jesus. That's actually just a general, good, helpful approach to any direction from Scripture, right? Is we sort of recognize he's here in perfection, in righteous moral perfection, in transcendence, in power above and beyond all that we can imagine. And we are down here in earth struggling with our depravity, struggling with the effects of the fall, and struggling with being surrounded every day by a fallen and sinful world, battling against our sin natures every single day. And so the answer to following Christ isn't saying, no, I don't struggle with that. No, I'm good there. I'm actually not a worried person. I, I, have, I have faith. That's not the answer. The answer is actually recognizing that we all fear something. We're all anxious about something. It's just you might not like what I'm anxious about, and I might not like what you're anxious about. I might think your fear is dumb, and you might think my fear is dumb. But the reality of it is we're all afraid of something. Whether you're worried about your future, your bank account, your kid's future, the, the, future, of, uh, the future of the country, the future of society, the future of the church, if we really think about the future, there's some level of anxiety that comes for all of us. And so recognizing that we're all broken, we're all in need of a Savior, and we're all in need of miraculous redemption only capable through the power of God, puts us in a place of dependence upon God for provision. And Jesus' priority in this passage is specific to the materialistic worries that his followers are experiencing. See, the first century disciples, they had no mixed messages there. When Jesus said, come and follow me, it was very clear. He meant, leave your home, leave your stuff behind. In many cases, leave your family behind, leave your livelihood behind, and live in full dependence, not knowing where you're going to find your food for the next day, not knowing where you're going to sleep the next day. Live in ongoing, regular dependence. Now, most of us aren't called to live like that. Most of us aren't called to just give up everything and move into an unknown 
you know, I said that in the earlier service, and a couple, a visiting couple looked at each other and laughed. And I said, well, what was that about afterwards? I'd never met them before. It's a sister of a church member. They say, oh, well, we're, we're just packing up our family and moving to Africa in a couple months. I'm like, okay, well, you guys get it. I get it. Some of us do leave, leave everything, pack up, and take four kids to Africa. I get it. Some people do that. Most of us aren't called to that level of sacrifice. We go home to the same, we know where we're going to sleep tonight. We go home to the same bed every night. We know that there's food in the refrigerator. We know that there's money in the bank account. We know that basic needs are pre- provided for. But what Jesus is saying to us is that we still have obsessions over the future. You may not be obsessing over, I don't know if I'll have enough money to buy dinner tonight. But you do have some level of concern for the future. And so for that reason, Jesus brings in two examples. And the first one, I think we need to recognize, is actually kind of shocking for Jesus to use. You know, in Matthew, Jesus talks about sparrows. Sparrows are fine. Sparrows aren't offensive. Ravens are offensive. And in Luke, Jesus uses a similar illustration as what he uses in Matthew about sparrows, but in Luke, he's talking about ravens. Ravens are scavengers that eat dead things. By the Mosaic law, they are declared unclean. They're the lowest of the low within God's created order because they, they depend on death in order to live, and they scavenge things that other people have killed, and that's how they receive their, their nutrition. And so when he calls to mind ravens here in verse 24, consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouses nor barns, yet God feeds them. He's saying they're not farmers, but they're not even, they're, they're not even gatherers or storers, like a squirrel would store up food for, for a long period of time. The ravens don't even do that. They go out every day and scavenge for that day. And yet God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? When he says that, recognize that he's talking about a bird that was considered unclean, disgusting, repulsive, according to the Mosaic law. And he says, how much more value are you than they? He is saying, how much more value are you who are created in the image of God than the lowest of the low? He is using an extreme example to make a point. And to make the point that you, as a human being, are the pinnacle of God's creative activity as being created in his image for his purposes and for his glory. Ravens were not created in the image of God. The lilies that he talks about as the next illustration, not created in the image of God. You, yes, you were. Every other human being, human beings that look like you, human beings that don't look like you, Human beings that have similar backgrounds as you, human beings that don't have similar backgrounds as you. We need to be concerned for every human being on this planet because every human being was created in the image of God. It's a basic biblical doctrine there. And what Jesus is saying here is if you are created in the image of God, you have great, great confidence in God's provision over you. Don't you think he cares about his most treasured possession? You're his favorite. You're his favorite creation. Not you individually, but all of us are as God's creation. And so, example one, the ravens is meant to communicate just the, the, the grandeur of God's view of those created in his image. Though we have fallen, though we are sinful, yes, God's plan of redemption and love to bring new life to those that have received him by faith 
is reconciling the image of God that he placed in each of us. The second example is the lilies. It comes up in verse 27. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, Solomon never had clothes like that. That's what he's saying. The richest Israelite in the history of Israel has never had clothes as ornate, as beautiful as the clothes that God created for the flowers that you step on. That's what God is saying. Or that's what Jesus is saying. And so it's a reminder to us, if you're worried about clothes, if you're worried about what you look like, if you're worried about physical appearance, that God's kingdom has higher priorities and God will provide for us with our basic needs. Now look at verse 31 here. Instead, instead of, of, uh, of worrying constantly, instead of being overcome by anxiety with regard to what you're gonna eat or what clothes you're gonna wear, instead seek his kingdom. Now here's where we can really miss a point significantly here. If we seek his kingdom, these things will be added to you. Here's what that does not mean. It does not mean you give more money to the church, you give more money to some Christian organization, and God is going to bless you financially, and you're going to have all the greatest material possessions you could imagine. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying give to his kingdom, and he will give material prosperity to you. What he is saying is if you seek his kingdom, what you need will be provided for. Now, for some of us, we need the reminder that each and every day, when you sit down and you pray before your meal, it's not an empty activity. When you pray before your meal, you don't do it because that's what mama taught you how to do. You do it out of a clear recognition that that, is, that meal is actually provided by God, as is every single meal. And yeah, I know you have a bank account, and you paid for it, and you cooked it, and it was your, your job that, that put the money in the bank account. I, I get that. But understanding what God is saying here to us is understanding that every meal, everything that we have, every item of clothing, every home that we own, every vehicle that we drive ourselves around, and every meal that we sit down to enjoy, no matter who cooked it, no matter who paid for it, no matter where the the food came from, everything is a gift that comes from God that he has provided for us. And so we need that reminder to seek his kingdom and recognize with gratitude and thanksgiving all the many practical gifts he gives us. But also we need the reminder that as you seek his kingdom, sometimes Christians starve. Sometimes Christians are persecuted. Sometimes Christians are martyred. Sometimes Christians suffer greatly. And so can this verse still be true with that? We know, we know Christians die. We know Christians starve. We know Christians don't always have their basic needs provided for. So is this verse still true? It's a real question we have to ask for ourselves. Verse 31, what Jesus' ultimate point is, if you seek his kingdom and seek your citizenship in his kingdom, then you will recognize that your standing in that kingdom overrides anything that happens in this kingdom. That no matter what anxieties No matter what trauma, no matter what suffering, no matter what persecution, no matter what what lack of food or lack of clothing you experience in this life, he is saying if you seek his kingdom, you will recognize that in his eternal kingdom, you will be provided for. You will be exceedingly, abundantly provided for. What he's doing there is he's drawing your attention away from the material stuff that you want and that you need here And he's drawing your attention towards your eternal need, the needs of the eternal kingdom. And so what he is saying here is not 
give money to God's cause and God will give you money so you can live a comfortable life. What he's saying here is if you seek his kingdom, you will recognize that your provision in the eternal kingdom far outweighs your lack of provision here. And your lack of provision here becomes tolerable when you are anchored by the hope of what the eternal kingdom will bring. So that's the first obstacle. And we we combat it by recognizing we meditate not on the potential future negatives, but instead we meditate on the sure and steadfast hope we have. And we meditate on what our purpose is in this life of glorifying God and enjoying him forever. Recognize that we have a calling and an opportunity to live out of his image. And then we as followers can actually be, imagine this, that we as followers of Jesus can actually be liberated from the bondage of worry, from the bondage of anxiety about physical needs and physical issues. We can be liberated from that bondage and and rescued into the freedom of living for Jesus in his eternal kingdom first. So that's the first obstacle, our worry. The second obstacle, possessions, in verse 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here's proof that in verse 31, he's not talking about physical provision in this life as much as he's trying to draw your attention towards the great provision we have in the kingdom of God. We want to provide ourselves with treasure, with money bags that do not grow old, a treasure that is in heaven. And so the second obstacle that many of us need to be combating in order to follow Christ most fully is this battle that we have of desiring physical possessions. And again, let's just be real. When I say we all worry about something, we all get anxious about something, let's go ahead and say we all got stuff that we like. We all have material possessions that we really like that we don't want to give up. And it's a, it would be a challenge to live with less for any of us. What Jesus is actually going on to say here is that, that uh, some of us need to sell our possessions and give to the needy. It's not necessarily a calling for all that Christians can't own anything and have to give away everything. But it is a heart posture that we need to be mindful of, that we need to be remembering and thinking about. That, that those first century disciples literally did give up everything in their livelihood, in their homes, in their families, to go on the road with Jesus. And so when you committed your life to Jesus, however you did it, whether it was praying a prayer in a privacy of your own home with your parents, walking the aisle somewhere, however you did it, when you first came to believe in Jesus and receive the newness of life in Jesus, what you signed up for that day was a journey in which you would cast away everything else for the sake of Christ's kingdom. And maybe you didn't know that's what you were signing up for at the time when you were five years old and you signed a card at church. But let me tell you, that's what the life of following Jesus is actually about. It's about sacrificing all. It's about the the cross of Christ bids me come and die. It's about giving up everything, taking up your cross to follow Jesus. But today we live in a society that constantly reminds us of how much stuff we need, even when we don't need it. Constantly, we are bombarded with thousands of advertising messages every day. The studies say that, it, that thousands of advertising messages, and it could be, you know, you could be facing 10,000, I could be fa- facing 5,000, it depends on our media engagement. But every human being is, is being bombarded by thousands of messages a day 
reminding you that you need something, you need to invest in something, you need to buy something else. There's some great need that you didn't know that you have that you do have, and this commercial is here, this ad is here to tell you of the need that you didn't think you have that you actually have. So go and spend money. But, but in that, we need to recognize that in the midst of all of that bombardment, it, 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 it brings with it a danger of, of rewiring our brain around such a desire for need, such a desire for new, shiny, such a desire for, for something else, to get some dopamine hit of having something new, have, getting that box from Amazon and opening it up. And it's like you're, you know, when you're an adult, you have to wait till, till Christmas morning to open pass, packages when you're a kid. But when you're an adult, you can just, two days, Amazon has it at your house. So it's like Christmas morning every two days. I want something new. I push a couple buttons on Amazon. I open it up. I get that dopamine hit anytime I want. And we live in this addiction of new stuff, new clothes, new toys, new devices, new things that we want. And we're constantly bombarded with those messages. And we can lose ourselves in the midst of it. By the way, you want to talk about possessions. There's all this talk now over the great um, supply chain issues and, and putting Christmas at risk and putting the delivery of Christmas presents at risk. And right now, 13% of the shipping containers in the world are stuck somewhere, not being able to be processed because of a logjam. And so, yeah, supply chains have completely broken down and ports are backed up. And boy, it's really inconvenient for us not to get our stuff in time. And there's going to be millions of people that don't get their Christmas presents on time this year. What are we going to do? Do you think we'll survive? The reality of the world that we face is that we, we do get anxious about these things because my kid needs that toy because that's what I told him that they were gonna get. My kid asked for it, so therefore I need to get it. Or I'm expecting things to work at a certain amount of time so my possessions become important to me because it's so easy to get and acquire those possessions when really... Jesus is telling us this is an obstacle. It's in the way. If you want to follow me, you've got to break that chain. You've got to be liberated from your worries. You've got to be liberated from your love of your possessions too. Because your possessions have become idols. Your stuff, your house, your car, whatever. Those things become idols that take the place of God to where if you lose them, it'll be so traumatic for you. That's when you know it's a problem. When losing a thing, when losing a possession becomes traumatic, you know that your connection to that possession, to that physical thing, is too great. So Jesus says, some of you need to give away that stuff for the sake of the poor so that you can pursue treasure that is not based on the possessions of this world. He goes on, it's not just our worries and our possessions that are in the way, it's our lack of action. It's our lack of obedience Verse 35, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him and at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants who find the master, who the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, 
for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, there's lots of interesting stuff going on in this passage. Uh, We need to know first that um, if you were a servant and your master in ancient Judaism said, I'm going to a wedding feast, you would expect them to be gone for days. Those feasts lasted multiple days, and most people traveling great distances, traveled distances on foot over a number of days. And so there might have been some ambiguity, some uncertainty in when the master would return. That's the image that Jesus is giving us here. The master has left to go to a great feast somewhere. The servants are running the show by themselves, waiting for the master to return. They don't know when he's going to come back. And if the master returns and those people are ready, what does the master do? He dresses for service. What does that mean? It means he takes a towel, he wraps it around his waist, he gets down on his hands and knees, and he washes the feet of his servants. That's the image here. Jesus just predicted something that he would do later in the upper room. And he's saying that the master, when when the master comes home and finds the servants ready, serving, doing what they're supposed to, then the master is going to dress for service, literally put on the clothes of a servant to serve the servants. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. It's a beautiful image that Jesus is predicting his own behavior here in this story. But beyond that, he, compare, he talks about the middle of the night, if he comes in the second watch or in the third watch. And so this means the middle of the night. The first watch is sort of early evening, right when it becomes dark. The second and third watch are when it's really dark, when it's really the middle of the night. Think 2 to 4 a.m., something like that. Now, Jason and Emily provide a good illustration for us today. Because Jason and Emily called my house at 3 o'clock this morning, ready to go, bag-packed, dressed, ready to go. Why? Because there was something exciting happening. There was new life being born into the family, and that bag had been packed for multiple days. And anyone that's been there, that's been preparing for a labor and delivery, you know the anxiety around it. You know this could happen at any time. You know we've got to get that bag packed. We've got to make sure we have plans for for what happens with, with the kids, what happens with, with everything, what we, do we have the right stuff to take to the hospital, all that sort of stuff, you prepare. And that's, what, that's the image he's giving us here. But he's not giving us the image of a baby being born. He's giving us the image of his return. So let me ask you, is it possible that Jesus returns today? Is it possible that Jesus returns tomorrow? And, and if, we, if we live with that possibility in mind, how do we live? If, if, that, if that is possible, that Jesus could return, then what do we do with today? How do we live today? Now, I understand it's, it, it's, it's hard because from the point that Jesus said that until today, Jesus' followers have awoken and gone to sleep 700,000 times. 700,000 days over the last 2,000 years since Jesus um, said this. But in the midst of it, he's telling us, and he's telling them, and he's telling future generations of Christians, be ready. Be ready at all times. How would you live today if you knew it was the last day before Jesus' return? If you knew that Jesus was showing up between 2 and 4 in the morning, tomorrow morning, how would you live today? How would you make the most of your opportunities? How would you uh, make the most of the opportunity to give a reason for the hope that is within you? What conversations would you be bold to have? What activities 
Would you say, nah, I don't really care. I don't, I don't need to do that. And what initiatives would you say, no, I really need to do this today? Jesus is telling us we need to live with that level of preparation. He uses the image of a home break-in. He says, if the master of the house knew that the home was getting broken into at a certain time, they would be prepared. Now, here's what I think of. I'm the home alone generation. And the home alone generation knows what to do when you know that a break-in is coming, right? You prepare. You prepare because you know, you know, you have this, you have this kid that he hears that the two burglars are going to break into his house. His family's gone. They've left him behind. And he knows exactly when they're coming. He knows the night they're coming. So what does he do? Goes through all these elaborate preparations. That's actually the image that Jesus is giving us. You know somebody's going to break into your house. You don't go to sleep as normal. It's not business as usual that day. You have a plan. You're prepared. And Jesus is saying, what's your plan for when the Son of Man comes? Multiple times in Scripture, Jesus is referred to as a thief in the night, coming to return at any hour. Are you prepared for that? Are you prepared for when you will meet Jesus face to face? Because it, it may not even be Jesus' return. It, it may just, we may just need to be reminded that any of us, without his return, could go to be with him through death at any point also. That our human lives are incredibly fragile, much more fragile than we recognize. And any of us could at any time be taken home to meet Jesus face to face. And what's the last thing we're going to be doing What's the last thing that we're going to be thinking? What's the last thing that we're going to be saying? Jesus says, your inaction gets in the way of your growth, gets in the way of your ability to follow me. So be ready. Lastly, his, he talks about selfish motivations. He goes on to tell the story of another servant and master. Peter asks the question, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for everybody? And the Lord said, who is the faithful servant and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them a portion, to give them their portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant who his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming. Now here's the image. There's either a faithful servant who manages the master's household well, or there's the unfaithful servant who lets his power go to his head. That servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming. So he begins to beat the male and female servants to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved the beating will, deserve, will, will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So, so it's a simple image. Jesus is saying there's one approach where the master serves faithfully, manages, or the servant serves faithfully, manages the master's household well, and is found being faithful. And therefore, the master comes home and says, well done, good and faithful servant. And there's another scenario in which the, master, in which the servant while the master is gone, lets the power go to his head. And the servant that has been put in charge of other servants takes 
extreme control over other servants, takes advantage of his position. And what Jesus is saying here is be careful that you are, that you are discerning your own motivations in the opportunities God has given you. The question for us is how are we leveraging the relationships, the influence, the opportunities we have in front of us? Let's say God has given you a level of influence, leadership within your, your company, leadership within your family. Let's say you are respected in the community. What do you do with that influence you've received? How do you leverage it? For the sake of your own comfort, that's what that sinful servant is doing. He is leveraging the influence he has received for his own comfort, his own pleasure. Or you can leverage the influence you've received for the sake of his kingdom. Whatever role you've been given within society, within your family, within God's kingdom, you've been given a role so as to live as an ambassador in Christ's kingdom. Maybe you've been given the influence over a classroom of students as a teacher. Steward that influence wisely. Maybe you've been given influence over a team as a manager of a team in your workplace. Steward that influence wisely. Maybe you've been given influence over children as a parent. Steward that influence wisely. Not for your own gain, not for your own acclaim, but for the sake of the kingdom of God. To whom much is given, much will be required. And so if you have a level of influence over people, recognize you're going to be held to a higher standard at the day of judgment for the sake because of your level of influence over people. We as citizens of the kingdom of heaven live first and foremost to leverage our resources, not just money, but possessions, influence, relationships. We leverage those for the sake of the expansion of the kingdom of God. So there are four obstacles, our anxiety, our possessions, our inaction, and our selfish motivations that seek first our own kingdom rather than Christ's kingdom. But in all of these, the biggest thing in our way, the biggest obstacle is a lack of faith, actually. Jesus brings that out very clearly at the beginning of the passage when he says that those that are living in constant worry are experiencing a lack of faith. And see, anxiety comes from lacking faith in God's provision, Obsession with possessions comes from lacking faith in God's perfect sufficiency. We don't recognize that God is enough, that God in his presence has provided all that we need. Inaction comes from a lack of faith in God's plan. We don't believe in God's way of unfolding his purpose and plan for humanity, so we just stay. We just sit. We just watch the world unfold around us. Selfish motivations come from the lack of faith in God's promises. We don't recognize God's promises as being true and, and, and effective for us. And so we want to build our own kingdom. We want to have our own protection by our own effort. And so in the midst of this, in, in all of these challenges, we as followers of Jesus cast these obstacles away for the sake of pursuing Christ. Now let's be clear about that. We don't receive Christ by trying harder. We don't receive Christ by being better. We don't receive Christ by just being, um, being better versions of ourselves, more righteous versions of ourselves, more obedient versions of ourselves. We receive Christ through the presence of Christ. We receive Christ because Christ has descended to be with us and to make us new. When scripture says many times, Fear not, do not be anxious. It is not 
a, a command to us to try harder to not think about our anxieties. All of, our, all of the scriptural commands about anxiety and fear come with promises of God's presence. Sometimes it's stated explicitly, sometimes it's stated implicitly by the whole of scriptural, um, uh, scriptural narrative. But the reality of it is when God tells us, fear not, do not be anxious, he is telling us, you can do that because I'm there. Let me prove it to you. Philippians 4, 6, you know this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Man, that peace that surpasses all understanding, we all want that. That anxious for nothing, we all want that. We all want to be free of anxiety, but how do we get there? Verse 5, back up a little bit. The Lord is at hand. Literally, God is here. God is here. Therefore, you need not be anxious about anything in verse 6. God is here. Therefore, when you are anxious about something, you can give it to him and he will take it. He will hear your requests. He will carry your burdens. He will sometimes use the people of his own body to help you carry your burdens. That's what Christ's body, the church, is here for, to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So let your requests be made known to God as a promise of God's presence here by his spirit, by the sacrifice of Christ, by the presence of Christ's resurrected body, his church, here for you to walk with you through the inevitable anxieties, challenges, and obstacles you'll face in your life. And so don't hear me say, you need to try harder to like your stuff less, to worry less, to be more active, to be more obedient, and to sacrifice your own motives for Christ. I'm not telling you to try harder. I'm telling you, recognize that Jesus is right there. Recognize that the Spirit of God is here in this room. Recognize that every promise of God is true, and they find their yes in the presence of Jesus the suffering servant who went to the cross for you because trying harder was never going to be the answer for you. Doing better, being educated more, having more strategies, being more trained in order to deal with your junk, that was never going to be the answer. The answer was always going to be new life that could only be achieved through him, through him dying on the cross so that you might live. And the spirit of God is here waiting to be welcomed in, waiting to be received. And the Spirit of God is here, bringing new life, bringing new life and, and new light to the hearts and minds of men. Jesus has done his work at the cross for you. And he is not expecting you to do better and try harder. He is expecting you to recognize his presence and so be received, redeemed into the family, and so that though these lesser challenges can, fa can fade away as we pursue Christ's kingdom. And so I'll leave you with two challenges as the band comes up. Either you're in the place of not having received in fullness the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you need to, to bow your knee today and receive in fullness the gift of God, of, through, the gift of God that is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Either you're in that place needing to bend your knee and give your anxieties and everything that you've tried to accomplish on your own, give it to him. 
Or you're in the place where you just need another reminder that his mercies are new every morning, that he has grace for you today, that he has mercy for you today with whatever the junk is you're going through in your life that you brought into this place this morning. God has grace to pour out for new life for you. And maybe, just maybe, he's more ready, more willing to pour out that new life of grace and mercy than you realize because you're holding on to your solutions, to your endurance, when really what the answer is for all of us is to just give it to Jesus. Let the Spirit of God do the work of regeneration and bring us to newness of life. Stand and worship with us.
Father, we stand here in the victory that you have achieved for us, recognizing that our future is secure. And so we have a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul in the midst of the anxieties of our day. Father, we praise you for that. Seal that promise in every heart and mind this morning, that new life is only attained through you, that salvation is only accomplished by you at your cross and then freely given through the regenerating work of your spirit. Father, be with us as we go and give us confidence to live in the light of your glory and as your kingdom citizens. And, and Father, we thank you. We praise you for the good news of the gospel we have received. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Now remain standing and receive the blessing of the Lord as we go. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.